Good afternoon. It is Friday, September 3rd, and this is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. And it is my pleasure today to introduce Patricia, who actually goes by Tricia, Krissa Foley, and she is a co-author of a book called Comebacks. And when uh, when her uh, PR person first sent me the note, all I had to do was read the tagline of the book, which is powerful lessons from leaders who endured setbacks and recaptured success on their terms. And I knew, without even talking to either of the co-authors, that this was uh, a book that I wanted to feature on the Executive Girlfriends Group. And uh, I was sharing uh, before we started the recording with Tricia that I actually want to be the headline in her sequel <laughs> because I am on my way back. Uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I actually said to uh, one of the people I work with, I'm back. <laughs> And so, Trisha, thank you so much for joining us on this holiday weekend when we don't have a, a heavy number of people on the call. But why don't you just start by sharing a little bit of your background, and then we'll jump into talking about the book. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me with the Executive Girlfriends Group. I'm thrilled and it sounds like a wonderful organization. And I love the idea of women helping women and connecting and sharing ideas and resources and finding out how we can all move forward, because that's what it's all about, right? Life is never a straight line. There's going to be ups and downs along the way, and we're in the midst of it. Sometimes we don't see so clearly, but others can help us see just where we are making progress and moving forward. And that's kind of the theme from Comebacks. And let me tell you a bit about how that book came together. My background is I'm a writer. I'm a former business journalist. Um, I've been on writing for um, myself and as an author and ghostwriter for 12 years. Before that, I was a journalist with Reuters um, based in Chicago. Um, when I wrote a book, uh, it came out a year ago in change called House of Diamond, which is a profile of Jamie Diamond. I had a chance to meet someone named Andrea Redman. Andrea um, was an executive recruiter and still does work in that area. She had brought Jamie Diamond to Bank One. We connected. She said, you know, I've got an idea for a book. And that book would be about big, you know, big-name CEOs who were fired. And, you know, what it would take to come back to face that very public humiliation and upset and how they got through it and how to get to the other side. Wouldn't that be a great book? And I said, that would be a fantastic book, but who in their right mind would talk to us? <laughs> Luckily, we found 10 very high-profile people. Andrea has a great uh, network and a great Rolodex. We found 10 people who had been at the pinnacle of their career when they faced uh, a very significant upset. They ran companies like Ford Motor Company and Baxter um, International and Motorola and Schwab, big name companies, and they were CEOs. And right. because it happened, CEOs, the average uh, you know, tenure in that job is about four or five years, um, sometimes very much less that things change, you know, cycles change. I'm not talking about anybody with any kind of you know, malfeasance or, you know, questions, it is, right. you were the growth person, we need a turnaround guy. Long story short, we found 10 incredible people who opened their their hearts, really, and were very vulnerable and very forthcoming about the rise, the fall, what it felt like, what it took, and how they chose to come back on their terms. 
Uh, that's great. You know, it, it's interesting because as I, I started to share uh, in our uh, earlier introductions before we started the recording, um, I just came off of, of a spectacular business failure. Um, and I like to use that term. I actually, uh, you know, it, it has become an endearing uh, term to me rather than something mm-hmm. that causes me any kind of pain because, um, you know, like like a lot of entrepreneurs who have great ideas and, and, you know, I actually was very, very fortunate in that I was able to get my idea funded, able to get a group of people, mostly women and, and many of whom are, are still active in the Executive Girlfriends Group, to kind of follow me down my, my path of vision, raised $7 million, got the project launched on a very, uh, very, very high profile, profile platform, Travelocity, and it was a, a travel technology. And, you know, less than a month later, we won a, a major industry award for innovators uh, at a major conference. And then less than 30 days later, uh, the company got shut down because of lack of funding. And so, mm-hmm. you know, again, it, it, it is uh, slightly different than, than the twist of your leaders who were running very, very high-profile, very, very successful companies. But nonetheless, um, there are so many people in the shoes that uh, that I filled in, in those years of being the CEO and, and the fundraiser and the inventor and, you know, the person with the vision trying to keep it going and, and you know, then to have to essentially lose everything, which, you know, kind of happens to all entrepreneurs at least once. And that's why I'm hoping that your second book that you and Andrea write will be about those entrepreneurial comebacks because I, I think that there's a real story to be told there. Sure. So let's, and let's even dive in. in. Larger, well, even I just want to finish your point. There, even in these yeah. larger companies, there is that entrepreneurial spirit. And we'll get into some of the examples. But David Nealman started JetBlue. Oh, yeah. And he's our first chapter in the book um, from, you know, an idea. And um, while JetBlue is still flying, and obviously, but he was told to leave. So he lost everything, quote, quote, maybe not financially, but he lost his, you know, his brainchild, his baby of a company. So, you know, their entrepreneurs take incredible risks, and they are sometimes spectacular failures as well as spectacular successes. But that ability to have a vision and, and have it funded and create it, you can do it again. Well, actually, it's so funny that David is your first chapter because David was one of my first clients in my consulting company. And so I I know him well uh, from his days when he built uh, the systems uh, to help run uh, early stage airlines uh, before he went and did some work with Southwest. So uh, we, we have something in common already. There you go. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, you you uh, talked about meeting uh, Andrea and, and getting to the place where uh, you, as a an experienced ghostwriter, uh, were able to embrace uh, a concept. And she had a lot of connections. And then you guys worked on this together. And you know, I have to tell you that out of all of the uh, uh, the authors that I have interviewed over the course of the last two years, um, you're actually the first one I've ever. Uh, interview that is actually in that kind of a position. Well, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated yeah, by thank it. Thank you. I wasn't a ghostwriter in this one. I've been an author before, and uh-huh. I've been uh, a co-author, and I've been a ghostwriter. Ghostwriter, normally you're the fairy godmother behind the scenes, the other person's right. name on the book. And, um, and I've done that, and I, I still do it uh, for some pretty high-level um, authors. 
in the business leadership area. But Andrea right. was so great because I, when she, but when she first approached me, I thought she wanted to maybe talk to me about being a ghostwriter. So right. as we're talking, or maybe just pick my brain, she said, "Well, what do you think?" I said, "Andrea, I think it's a great idea." Well, she said, "Do you want to do it?" And I said, "I'd love to." She said, "So you want to be a co-author?" I go, "A what?" <laughs> oh no, you're going up. This is full. Even Steven, you know, oh, flip the coin. Weird. Whose name goes first? Um, full author. And it, that was great. But we had to, in any partnership, you have to say, well, what are everyone's strengths? And obviously, Andrea had the connections, right? right? And she's a, she also was a very skilled interviewer in a very different way. Now, I'm a journalistic kind of an interviewer. But she had been an executive recruiter for such a long time, she could ask the really pointed go deep and go deep and go back at it again and go deep question. So, I, so, and then I did most of the, the sort of the writing and the, you know, and I would edit with a shovel and she'd edit with a scalpel. Um, and we had a blast. <laughs> we had a really good time telling these stories. And often, you know, it's like when you go to a lecture or, a pro, or even a movie with a friend, you see one thing and they see something else. Yeah. Well, same thing when we would sit down with someone and they would tell their story. Often we would see and hear the same thing, but I'd hear a detail differently or she would. And then in sharing that afterwards, the stories got fuller, more deeply developed, and I hope more satisfying for the reader. Oh, I love that description. And, and actually, I just, uh, right before the call, wrapped up a meeting with a couple of members of my team. We're launching into a major uh, new consulting project next week, and we were talking about that, of, of what happens when you sit in the room and you're interviewing, and, and maybe you only have the job of note-taking, but you get to watch the nuance of the facial expressions and, and the body language that goes on. And, and, you know, quite often people do come away hearing completely different things. And I do remember saying, oh, you know, I, I hadn't thought of that or I didn't hear that of, of, of what was going on. And, you know, I think actually the fact that you come from that background, Tricia, of, of having been the ghostwriter and, and, you know, letting somebody else take the credit, that, that actually makes this particular experience uh, you know, really, really interesting. And like I said, I haven't had a chance to read the whole book, but um, this is one of the first ones that I've just taken on the title and the, and the subtitle of the book. Uh, and again, you know, the powerful lessons from leaders who endured setbacks and recaptured their success. Um, those who uh, frequently listen to the Executive Girlfriends Group interviews know that I'm also, you know, kind of a, a sucker for how a book is laid out and how it's structured. And and, you know, you, you have uh, done just a beautiful job of laying out the stories of each of these individuals. So um, we don't certainly have time to go through all of them, but and I know you, you alluded to some of the, the companies that these folks uh, uh, actually ran. And David Nealman is the first one, and, and uh, since a lot of the women in the Executive Girlfriends Group are in the travel industry, they do know him firsthand, and, and he is legendary on so many different fronts, not only from his time at JetBlue, but also his time at Southwest and, and actually selling his software company several times, uh, Accenture and HP. And, and um, so we've, we've seen him through a lot of things. But what were some of the most important things that, that were the takeaways out of, of your discussion with David? I mean, obviously, you anyone who's heard him speak, and he did come to a, a premier event, shall we say, at Northwestern University where Andrea and I um, also spoke um, and talked about you know, his experience and his passion for the, and for his idea, his real belief and his mission are come through so strongly. And that hasn't changed. 
I mean, right now he's in Brazil with an airline called Azul, which is sort uh-huh. of basically the jet blue of Brazil. And what the thing that captured us is his devotion to a concept that people talk about is servant leadership. This idea mm. that he really believes if my employees are happy, if they are treated well, if they feel special, if they feel like, wow, I love my job, and they come to work every day excited, the customers are going to be really happy. So he always put his focus on the employees, thinking when they're taken care of, I know that the customers are going to come back. And um, when he was speaking at Northwestern, there were people who had either worked for JetBlue or knew, had family members at JetBlue, and basically one guy stood up in the audience and said, will you come back? <laughs> um, there, there, he created a quite an amazing culture there. Um, that you know is, I think, certainly the biggest takeaway from our experience with him. And, and Tricia, do you think that David's focus on servant leadership has a direct tie back to the importance that his faith plays oh, in his life? Oh, ab- because absolutely. Uh, I mean, he, you he know, says so. You know, he was a, a missionary. Uh, he's from the Mormon Church. Right. And he went to Brazil, where his father also, by the way, had been a missionary before, you know, in his younger years. And right. the family had lived there for a while when his dad was with UPI um, in the Latin American Bureau. And so David, number one, you know, had a sense of service to others and also saw the haves and the have-nots in Brazil right. during that time. So he said, gee, you know, here I know I can with Azul – allow them to have a regional airline for a cost that's not much more than a bus ticket, but it will right. take, you know, an hour and a half or two hours as opposed to 23 hours to get where they oh, can absolutely. Go. And so that, so his faith and that experience absolutely played into it, and it's genuine. That's the other thing. If a passion isn't genuine, it's not going to be really a passion. It's going to be a gimmick that's going to last about 15 minutes. That's for him, so interesting. Very and I had forgotten about the Brazilian connection too, because my father uh, was a uh, born in Brazil, of of Brazilian missionaries, or actually American missionaries to Brazil. And I had forgotten that David and I had that in common. Yes, there's a great Harvard um, uh, Business School um, kind of story about that his servant leadership, which I'll send you a link if you'd like to read it. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, tell us about David Patrick. David Patrick had, um, it was a really go-getter from day one. And he was probably the most emotionally honest of the CEOs. I mean, they were all vulnerable, but he was the guy who looked in the mirror and did see warts and all. He grew up in a working-class background. Um, he said that there was the only, you know, white-collar professional on his block when he was a little boy growing up was the guy in the corner who was a teacher. Everybody else was a um, worked in a factory or, or maybe they drove a bus or a taxi. I mean, a good, hard-working background. And that work ethic really came through for him. Um, very talented athlete, um, could have gone to the NFL, but a coach didn't quite deliver the invitation to try out that he was supposed to. So David faced a lot of early disappointments, kind of like a dream that looked really promising, and then it, then it kind of blew up in his face. Wanted to go to medical school, really tried to get to medical school, wasn't able to get in. And finally ended up in financial services while well, he really flew through it and ended up being president and then co-CEO of Schwab. And it was a time he worked very closely with Chuck Schwab, who he still considers to be a great friend, and they were growing leaps and bounds and technology and Internet trading and you know, online accounts and all that. 
And then the 2000 technology bubble burst and the market went down and trading went down and people became less uh, enamored with, uh, with online investing. And David, who had been a builder, found himself needing to turn around and retrench, which was not exactly his strength. And even though he thought, you know what, I've been in this business, I've been with this company like 20 years, um, you know, let me go out when it's my time, kind of was told one day, you're gone. And it's devastating, and it was humiliating. Mm. And he talked about that, and he talked about the need to really kind of feel the pain, feel the embarrassment. Um, he had done some work personally, which he talks about in the book, um, after a divorce, kind of looking at himself going, what is it about me and the people I'm with? And finding out that there was some behavior on his point, that he wasn't always as gentle as he could be, wasn't as always collaborative as he could be took those lessons personally, professionally, really, really works on it now and um, you know, has a great family life and a great career and doing some things now, more consulting, more private, like venture capital sort of things. But learn the lessons in the difficulties. And his best line, which I love and I now I quote it all the time, is what made you successful in the past will make you successful again. You know, you may not choose to go back to the great big huge company. You may be right. entrepreneurial. You may consult. You may be little company. I don't know what you might even change careers. But that those abilities that you have, your work ethic, your tenacity, your creativity, your analytical ability, your communication skill, your loyalty, whatever it makes you you, that doesn't change. And that's the real takeaway from his story. Well, and I, I also love the quote that you include at the beginning of the chapter, which is, no matter how successful you are, there are always setbacks. Yes. Success in life demands the ability to bounce back. And I, and I think that that is what I have learned in my, in my personal situation, uh, you know, with what I call my success uh, spectacular business failure, is that success isn't everything going right. <laughs> And I think a lot of people, um, you know, have that notion that, that that's what success is, is that you just sail along and everything goes right and you're fortunate, right place, right time, every time. And there are setbacks of other varieties, people we've talked to. I mean, you know, somebody may have a pretty stable career, but they may face, a, God forbid, a health upset or a relationship fails or there is some other kind of, upset or trauma that creates what we call the rug getting pulled. You, you know, you, you felt you were going along fine in life and whoops, you're off your feet. Patty Dunn, you know, chairman of the board, non-executive meeting, she wasn't, you know, working with the company for Hewlett-Packard, you know, great reputation, fabulous career, some, uh, you know, some turmoil at HP at the time. Would she become chairman of the board? Thought about it, sure I will. I want to be the good board member. Well, then there's a, the, the investigation into some leaks of confidential information to the media. Uh, she did not handle the investigation. She did not uh, order how it was done, yet she faced four felony uh, indictments on uh, espionage charges. Now, these were later dropped while battling stage four cancer. Oh, my okay. gosh. So here she is literally in battle on both fronts. She, too, came to the Northwestern Forum and wowed everyone as a, an incredible woman. Um, and she said, you know, here, you know, life happens. Stuff happens. And you, number one, have to choose your priority when you're faced, when you're in battle like that. For her, it is her health. 
Um, and she said, this also, you know, you get to the point where, not that it's like all Pollyanna and all okay, but you kind of get to see that there's a gift in some of this. You learn, number one, who your allies are. Who are the people who know you and really know you and really care about you? And you separate those from people who, you know, are never going to know you and whatever opinion they may or may not have about you, whether the neighbors are talking or not talking, you wipe that out of your head because you can't focus on people you can't influence. If you do that, you'll drive yourself crazy. This idea of being able to know really who you are and trust that the people who really know you and love you are on your side, that's half the battle. That helps you stage that comeback. Because wow. And you know, again, I mean, that, that is just so powerful. And I, and I didn't know about the cancer side of the equation. But, you know, since that is uh, so common, uh, you know, each one of us knows at least uh, one person, if not more, uh, you know, that is either battling cancer or, or has, uh, has lost that battle. And, you know, again, I, I love the quote from her at the beginning, and, and it's just what you uh, just finished sharing with us, that people rallied around me literally and figuratively. I got hundreds of emails from people I worked with and for, clients and employees and people who had been my bosses that made a huge difference. If the world had gone silent, I would have been devastated. And I, I think the lesson that I get from that is, you know, ha- again, having just gone through this, there were so many people who rallied around me. But I'm wondering now if there are people who need my support because of that, right? Uh, that experience, who who I haven't uh, reached out to, who you know have quietly shut their companies down and quietly shut down their websites or whatever it was that they were doing. Um, and that, that we need to reach out and applaud them for their courage because it is courageous even to shut something down, you know, when it is time. Absolutely. I think that is another takeaway because you say, you know, I feel blessed I got to the other side or that I'm I'm getting there and right. you want to give back and you want to give back by uh, by sharing your wisdom. That's why every single one of the people in this book, that, you know, nobody – would you do, who would do this in the middle? Yes, I would love to sit down with you and talk to you about how I got fired publicly. And my, my, my picture was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and I'm on CNBC and they're not saying nice things because they never do. They go, well, everyone knows that Joe Schmo, you know, third quarter made a bad, you know, you know how they do that. Well, why would they sit down? Now, some people might say, well, they want to set the record straight. Well, maybe, but the biggest um, motivation was to help other people. They liked the idea that their experiences could help other people, especially folks, maybe some folks who might be their peers, but the yeah. idea that, that this is a human story. Sure, if you're running Ford Motor Company and you lose your job, you're probably not going to have to worry about paying your mortgage, right? I mean, the money part we have to set aside. But right. the human part, the feeling of being vulnerable and embarrassed also wondering, what am I going to do tomorrow? Again, not with a money side attached to it, but the purpose we all get from being active. That is human, and doesn't that does not depend upon a dollar sign. And the idea that those emotional lessons could be shared mm-hmm. and be utilized by other people, that's why these folks wanted to talk to us. Well, and I love uh, Christopher Galvin's um, topic, which uh, was about the power of resilience, because, you know, it really is that bounce back uh, and knowing that you can't change what happened, 
um, you know, you might get an opportunity to set the uh, record straight or at least to say, you know, what was the story behind the story? Because it's easy to think that you see things, and, and the chapter just after this is about, about Enron. So, so uh, again, if you can just give us, um, you know, just what, what is the nugget from Christopher Galvin about resilience? Well, you know, his, he was a third-generation Galvin CEO. His grandfather started the company, his father was the CEO, and then he came on later on as the CEO. During Chris's time, you know, it was the technology bubble, SARS happened in China, you know, a lot of obstacles. Right. Doing a turnaround just as a turnaround was coming to fruition. Granted, with a couple of delays, the board said, we're losing patience, you're out of here. Literally like two weeks later, the numbers come in and it's out of the ballpark. But he has to leave. I mean, it's already been announced. So he's watching all of his good work, you know, come to fruition, knowing that someone else is going to take, an, um, you know, the reins of the company. And, the, and so, right. and so this idea of this embarrassment and maybe some anger and hurt and upset, but the idea of resilience, he went back to his grandfather's example. His grandfather had gone bankrupt twice in like the 1920s with previous companies. One time, um, the technology wasn't different enough. A second time, a business partner didn't absconded with the money and didn't pay the taxes. These were little small companies. But he kept persi- persisting, and he was resilient personally and had an idea that, boom, blossomed into Motorola. So he said, hey, resilience is my family story. Right. Resilience is who I am. And you know what? Resilience is a quality we all have to some degree. And I think our takeaway from Chris is, you think about times in your life when you were resilient. It doesn't matter if it was a third grade play and you didn't get to play, you know, the lead and you and you realized it was okay to be in the chorus. I mean, these are life experiences we right. gather through the years, right? That the more we remember, hey, I was resilient in the past. I know how to do this, the more you can be resilient in the future. And moving on from that, and again, I mentioned uh, Enron in, in uh, talking about, you know, kind of that resilience, but, but uh, Pug Winokur's story about after the storm, and, and, you know, here he was, a former board member of Enron, and, and, of course, the Enron story was just the beginning of scratching the surface of the financial crisis and yes. uh, of, of really questioning how companies were reporting information. And, and again, I love his quote uh, that, that you extracted for the beginning of the chapter. You learn it's not about you at all. There's nothing you can do. You have to accept that it's not about you at all. And I know it's so easy in these situations uh, to take it personally. And, and one of my very first, in fact, my very first radio show when I launched my radio network last year uh, was with Nancy Widman, who was the former head of CBS Radio. And when Westinghouse came in and, and bought it, again, she had been really instrumental in building up the whole network. And they just walked in and said, oh, we got two. We don't need you. And, I mean, she was ushered out. And the following Monday morning, she got up and it's like, okay, you know, you, you just said it a few minutes ago. What do I do now? Where do I go? Do I get up and get dressed? And, and you know, if I do, then then what do I do? So, you know, after you've been, uh, you know, a former board member of a company with such a public embarrassment, you know, so so what about After the Storm, which is the, the title of that chapter? Exactly. And Pug, you know, as you said, was an outside board member, had been the longest-serving outside board member, and he had to do a couple of things after the storm. Number one, he volunteered to serve on the board committee that did the investigation, the kind of the how could we not know what was going on there? How right. did 
management pull the wool over their our eyes. He volunteered for that, and he said, you know, there were folks who even said I didn't belong on that committee, he said, but I needed to. I had an obligation. I needed to know how this happened. So that's the first thing he did. And the other thing he did is he said he felt um, he started several philanthropic organizations. One is on business journalism and studying how stories are developed and reported. And he said that was a direct um, result of his feeling angry at some of the misrepresentation of facts, some of the outright just wrong information, and said, I don't want to stay in the negative. I want to contribute to the field. So he has got a great um, uh, organization with the Columbia School of Journalism and has invited um, business journalists and whatever. It kind of get together as a forum. That's number one. Number two, taking his mother down on a trip through the um, Mississippi Delta area. She was from Georgia originally. His mom was then in her 80s. Um, they looked around. They said, gee, we could do a lot of good work around here. They started um, uh, a, a charity. That's probably not right. It's more of a network of resources where it, there is funding, but there's also uh, schools like Harvard, for example, that commit and send students, and they have a uh, a, a program that teaches people everything from better infant and uh, maternal health care to uh, microfinance and really developing the Mississippi Delta. And all that came out of a sense of, I've been through this storm. I don't want to be stormy. <laughs> I want to do something positive in the world. And that's how he brought himself out of it and said, you know, and this is another theme, you know, sometimes you got to focus on somebody else besides yourself in order to move forward. Mm, I love that. And that, that really does lead in into the next one, which is, uh, I'm sorry, Harry Kramer, uh, the former uh, chairman and CEO of, of Baxter. And, and this chapter is called Values-Based Leadership. And, you know, he says, I'm on this earth for a short period of time and I want to make a difference. Exactly. Harry grew up with that company, spent, I don't know, almost 30 years there, 20-some-odd years there, was CEO at 49, uh, was CEO for six years after being CFO for four years, um, a little hiccup along the way. You know, all companies grow tremendously, then hit kind of a stall. And when it stalled, they, the board said, I'm sorry, but you're done. And he said, you know, it hurt, but he said, you know what, I had a great ride, and I want to always keep focusing on doing the right thing. So doing the right thing for him is he actually stayed and ran the company while they found his successor. And this was not one of those, oh, he stayed, wink, wink, you know, and the guy's really off golfing. He came in every day. He ran it like he was the steward of the company until mm -hmm. they had the successor in place, and he packed his car at 7 o'clock one night and drove home and turned a wonderfully running company over to a successor. How could you do that? Ouch, right? But he said, as a values-based leader, I was always committed to doing the right thing. He's now teaching at Northwestern University. Uh, he teaches values-based leadership and said, all of my experiences, the successes and the failures, go into what I teach my students so that they can be values-based leaders who are resilient, who are able to make a difference and understand that crisis change our constants in the business world and in life. So that's Harry's story. Uh, that That is really amazing. And and uh, then just kind of winding down, we've got a couple of more. I, I wasn't going to go through them all, but I can't stop. <laughs> I'll so, be quick. Uh, 
Um, Jack Nasser, um, former CEO of Ford Motor Company, and, and the title of this chapter is New Life After a Long Career. A long career, 30 years, traveled the globe. And this is another funny thing. Many of these executives reached, you know, huge, the pinnacle, right? I mean, here he is, CEO of Ford. But they started off at, you know, out of college, a couple of them, he and Dirk Yeager at P&G. That will do Dirk and, and, and Jack together. That will, that will give us a okay. extra time. You know, Dirk Yeager ran P&G. Jack Nasser ran Ford Motor Company, both of them as CEOs. Both of them had started out um, in, in other operations for Dirk. He was in, in uh, Holland and then Belgium. For Jack, he was in his native Australia. And they both said, you know, when I was, you know, 20 years old or whatever and, and out of college, and if I get to, I got to be like a regional vice president, you know, wow, and have like 12 people reporting to me, that would be really great. So they <laughs> never set their sights on being CEO. It just happened. They grew up through the company. In Jack's case, he, you know, tried to turn around Ford a little bit too aggressive, maybe uh, made some waves and was told, you're gone. Dirk. Same situation at Procter and Gamble. You know, they needed to really become more innovative, more competitive. Pushed maybe a little too hard. He was gone. Both of them, in their late mid fifties, took different tactics. Dirk said, "I'm gonna, I'm done. I'm really done. I want to help small companies. Be an advisor. Be a board member. For me, I'm going to say, my comeback is knowing that I always did the best I could. I'm at peace." That's really great because he's not having to recreate the mountain because there is no interest there. Jack, on the other hand, said, I don't want to run another big company. Well, at least not right away. He <laughs> went into private equity, but first he said, I, and now he's uh, the chairman of BHP Billiton, the world's largest um, natural resources company. So both men went in kind of divergent paths, but they had one thing in common. They didn't jump at the first thing that came along. And for all of us, that's a big temptation. We have an upset. I want it to be over. Maybe there's some financial reason. But you know what? If we're not discerning, we're going to end up in the same mess we were in before. And Jack said, I mean, he had the luxury of not doing anything for six months or a year. But truly, whether it's a six months or a weekend or whatever, this mm-hmm. idea of I'm going to choose my next place because then I can be successful that's the takeaway from both these stories. And for Jack, you know, the new life was he said, I want to look at all the possibilities. He said, I never would have done private equity before. I never right. would have been, uh, you know, um, in, in these involved with so many startups and, and companies that needed a strategic investment. I never would have done that before had I not lost my job at Ford. It's a pretty cool way of looking at things. Absolutely. And so speaking of, of comebacks, I mean, Jamie Dimon is uh, the title of the chapter is the ultimate com- comeback. And of course, he was the chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase and former president of Citigroup. And uh, you had mentioned him as, as being kind of part of the early inspiration for the book. So Right, because um, I wrote a book. Um, I'm the author of a previous book called The House of Diamond, which actually is coming out again this year in paperback. Um, mm-hmm. So I had interviewed him before for that. That's how I met Andrea. And we needed to put him in this book because everybody knows the story with the president. Citigroup, kind of the, the presumed heir apparent of Citigroup, he gets fired one day and he's out and he's off. And 18 months later, he emerges as CEO of Bank One, uh, which was based in Chicago. Um, turned that around. It was a really troubled regional bank. Sold it to J.P. Morgan Chase. And since then, 
has gone on, originally came in as president and then became chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase and arguably, you know, a Wall Street statesman at the head of one of the strongest financial institutions that has weathered the crisis extremely well and is very well thought of in business and in even in the government. Um, and Jamie has received, like, so many awards for his leadership. But here's the tactic we took, because we figured everybody's kind of heard that one especially if they read my first book. <laughs> but right. the thing we want to focus on is when Jamie made the move from Citigroup to Bank One and then Bank One to J.P. Morgan, he had three school-age daughters. And his wife, Judy, who he had met at, at Harvard Business School, and they've been together ever since, was is truly his confidant. We interviewed Judy as well, and we talked about the family aspect of a comeback. You know, the decisions you make afterwards you know, what's the impact going to be, in their case, uprooting school-aged children, their youngest daughter was, I think, like a middle schooler at the time, away from extended family, coming out to Chicago, new schools. When he ended up back on Wall Street, he commuted every weekend because they wouldn't leave Chicago till the last daughter was out of high school. And you might say, oh, well, how nice for him because he's got all that money. I don't care how much money you have, but at the end of a week, if you're getting on an airplane every single Friday night to go see your family and then you're coming back on a Sunday, you're still just as tired as somebody else. And I thought that's a tremendous insight that we could share, that sometimes comebacks really are a group project, whether it's, you know, family or it's your friends or it's a relationship or whatever your personal life looks like. That's part of your comeback. In term, also in terms of, hey, how's my comeback going to affect that side of my life? Making sure that they were in sync. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you're right. It, you know, it does take a village. And and uh, again, I I was so fortunate in the building of my company to have amazing people around me. But I've got to tell you that that the last year after, you know, it didn't seem that there was any hope that we could ever resurrect it, to still have them by my side, to still be speaking to me, and not only that, to be willing to dive in to do something else with me sure. uh, consistently amazes me, and you know who you are. Let's, uh, let's talk about the last one. The last um, one this- is our, one of my favorites, because this is the one person who did not get fired. He fired himself. Dale Dawson grew up in Texas. His dad was a milkman. He used to ride the truck with his dad sometimes at 5 in the morning, would go in the back doors of people's houses and put the milk in the the refrigerator. I mean, this is a real hard-working, you know, American story. Grew up um, KPMG consulting, head partner in his practice. I went to Stevens, which is a boutique investment firm in Little Rock. They may not be as well-known, but they are the ones who took Walmart public, so very well-respected, very prestigious firm. And, you know, basically ran, you know, went, rose through the ranks and then decided, gee, I want to run my own company, ran a company called Truck Pro with the CEO, sold it to AutoZone, a publicly traded firm for a, a very large amount of money, and then sat back and said, now what? And he had a real epiphany, you know, because he could have stayed with AutoZone and gone up the ranks and done the whole thing again and all that and been a CEO someplace again. But Dale had an epiphany that he talked about, which was, and it, for him it was a spiritual one. It was kind of like, well, what am I here for? And you know, he, there's a funny line in the book. He had met a bishop um, from Africa, and he's real. He said, I sat down and said, 
Well, when he gets to heaven, he's going to get a lot of attaboys, and well, I'm not going to get any. <laughs> so um, he decided that he needed to have purpose in his life because purpose and passion were missing from his life. Been there, done that. So he fired himself, as we say. Said, I'm going to pull the rug out from under my life. I'm going to sit with the silence and the uncertainty. I'm not going to go into the office. I'm not going to have the connections. I'm not going to have all these things. Now, granted, he had the financial wherewithal, but he also had the emotional strength to do that voluntarily. And Dale today is working with that bishop, and they are building schools in Rwanda, which is mm. a, kind of the star of Africa these days as, um, you know, the country that was torn apart by that brutal genocide. And as that country comes together, there are folks like Dale who are helping, again, to build schools and to create opportunity for the best and brightest of Africa to be educated and then to return to their country to help build the political and economic infrastructure that they need. Well, I think the quote from Dale uh, that you chose to include in, in the uh, the cover for the chapter is, is really what I want to leave everyone with because, uh, you know, while, while many of us do have to work for money and, and we don't have the kind of luxury that some of these senior executives have when, when they change uh, horses or, or have to get off the horse even if they didn't want to, here's Dale's quote. I had never worked for money but for the challenge and the passion and the learning curve. And when the curve went flat, I went to find something else. And I asked myself, why do I do what I do? What do I really want to do? And the most compelling question of all, what am I going to become passionate about? Mm. And I just, you know, I think that that is the question that even those of us who haven't just come off of a a failure or aren't aren't looking to come back but but are, you know, perhaps just in between successes like one of our our, uh, folks who's on on the call today or or in a job that, you know, they like – you know, well enough, and the company is solid, but uh, maybe maybe don't have that passion every day when they go to work. I, I just think that your book has an awful lot to offer uh, to uh, an awful lot of our egg members from from different perspectives. So again, the name of the book is Comebacks. Uh, the authors are Andrea Redmond and Trisha Crisofoli, and uh, I just thank you, Trisha, so much for sharing with us. Uh, these powerful lessons from the leaders who did endure setbacks and recaptured their success on their own terms, which is the subtitle of the book. Uh, Tricia, can you tell folks uh, how they can learn more about you and some of the other books that you've written? Um, By the way, uh, both you and Andrea will have a profile on the Executive Girlfriends Group. You will also have a a free membership uh, to the Executive Girlfriends Group, kind of a, a lifetime membership that you can participate anytime you want, just uh, just to be a part of the group, um, but you'll also be able to post how people can find you. But I'd like to go ahead and include in the recording, um, how can they find you, Tricia? That's great. Thank you so much. Um, the book, Comebacks, that you can find in your the usual places. Um, if you can figure out how to spell Patricia Crisofoli, you can find me through patriciacrisofoli.com. So probably on the egg page, my name is somehow spelled out there. If you find that name and you smush it together and you put .com after it, you'll find it. <laughs> Yeah, the link will actually be there for our egg members. Uh, we do make the recording available with commercials for people who are not egg members, uh, and so this will be available uh, on our Blog Talk Radio channel. 
Um, so I did want to make sure that uh, we give people the ability to find you. But, uh, Trisha, not only was this just a really, really inspirational book, but I just thank you for being so articulate about, uh, you know, really the high points from uh, from the stories of these men and women because I think, you know, sometimes we look at them and, and we just see them in that role and, and maybe we see the story on, on the front of uh, – a major magazine or on, on a CNN interview, and we kind of forget what happens after, right. uh, you know, the limelight. And so you really, really brought that back to us. So thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Well, great. Well, I'm going to turn off the recording because what's set on the rest of the egg call stays on the rest of the egg call. And again, Trisha, you're welcome to stay or you're free to go if you need to go. I'll be glad to stay. All right. Well, hang on just a second. Let me turn off the recording, and I'll be right back. 